0: Well, today we pick up in the second half of the story of David's rebellion and restoration. This second half of the story here in chapter 12 is told to us at a considerably slower pace than what we saw last week in chapter 11. The 15 verses or so that I just read cover one fateful day, really one fateful conversation. Perhaps it happened as quickly as we can read it in our Bibles. Chapter 11, as we saw last week, told us of David's great undoing, his great fall. It told us at a breakneck speed, in part to show us the power of sin, the the vortex of sin, the, the speed at which it spirals and spirals out of control. So remember that progression that we saw last week in the early part of chapter 11, where David saw, he inquired, he sent for, he took, he laid with Bathsheba, she returned, she sent word, I'm pregnant. It's like Genesis 3 all over again. Remember there, the woman saw, the tree was good, it was a delight, and she took. And so here we find our king. Surrounding in a surrounding of great blessing and ease and comfort and peace, and, and he saw a woman and saw that she was good, and he took. When Adam and Eve realized what they had done, they hid, they covered. And when David's one-night fling turned into much more, he sought to hide it. He sought to cover it. Adam and Eve hid and covered themselves unsuccessfully in Genesis 3. But in 2 Samuel 11, it leaves off with David seeming to hide and cover up what happened fairly well. Fairly well. So, what will come of it? What's next? Where is this thing going? That's a question that's not just born out of curiosity for good storytelling. David's great fall in 2 Samuel 11 is not just a moral tale of old. This is about the promises of God and the people of God and the plan of God. And we know what happened when Adam and Eve fell. We all fell. We know that Old Testament principle seen again and again. That as it goes with God's man, so it goes with God's people. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the nation. We know from Deuteronomy 17 what God said his king should be. God said, when you come to the land, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. What's going on with David? What will happen to him? We know what happened to King Saul when he was confronted by a different prophet. Back in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was told, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you this day, and he is giving it to another. What will come of David and his sin, his multiplied sins? Well, in short, the answer in 2 Samuel 12 is both hopeful and heavy. Five C's, five C words will help us work through 2 Samuel 12 this morning. The first is confrontation. Confrontation. The wayward king is confronted, as we already read. In chapter 11, remember that David was the mover. He was the great mover of things. He was sending and he was taking. Twelve times we see that word send or sent. And usually it's David doing the sending. Sending the troops into battle. Sending for Bathsheba and taking her. Sending for her husband to conspire against him. Then sending Uriah away with his execution orders. And then finally sending for Bathsheba one last time to take her as his wife. Well, look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now God is sending. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet. To David in chapter 11 it it seemed like God was silent and in fact he was we only have the one comment at the very end this thing displeased the Lord but that's the narrator speaking God was silent but he was not absent nor was he indifferent never think that because God is silent that he's absent or because he's silent that he is indifferent or that because he's silent for a time that he will be silent for good and it's good when he's not silent forever. It's really good that it doesn't end in chapter 11 with his displeasure. And then you turn to chapter 12. and We find out that God moved on. God gave up on David. No, there is grace in those first few words of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan, yes, for a confrontation. But he sent. And praise God for it. Praise God for That day when he called for Adam and Eve in the garden as they hid. Praise God that he relentlessly pursues crouching guilty sinners like you and me. And he's still doing it today. And praise God for Nathan's that he uses. Nathan was an obedient prophet. And he was a courageous prophet. He was literally risking life by confronting This king. Not to mention, he was confronting a king who, in recent days, was more and more acting like the kings of the nations, the kings of this world. And what do the kings of this world do with counselors that they no longer like, who don't say what they want them to say? They get rid of those counselors and they get new ones. Nathan was obedient and courageous. And because he was risking his life by confronting the king, he didn't start with a direct confrontation. He cleverly planned a chess match, hoping that the king would move himself in to checkmate. That's exactly what happens. He tells the king a story, which we know to be a parable, but David apparently took to be a real-life scenario that he was to judge being Israel's king and judge the story is slightly unrealistic but it does the trick it does the trick to communicate the key elements of the last chapter there's a poor man with only one ewe lamb he has nothing else and this one lamb is precious to the family It eats and drinks with them at the table. It grows up with the kids. It was like one of his daughters. He held it in his arms. Then there's a rich man, and he has many flocks and herds, but he was unwilling to use any of his own sheep for hospitality, and so he stole the poor man's only lamb, his precious lamb. He took it. He killed it. He served it. And David responds immediately and decisively to the scenario. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no pity. It's dripping with irony, isn't it? David is the one who deserved to die. Adultery and murder were both capital punishments in the Old Covenant. Theft was not a capital punishment in the Old Covenant. Fourfold restitution was the sentence for theft, but not death. So David here seems to have moved beyond impersonal, dispassionate justice when he hears this scenario. He's more angry than he should be. He's not ruling with justice and equity here, though he's siding with the right side. Perhaps he's compensating for his own guilty conscience. He's not thinking very well. He was slow to catch on to what to what Nathan was talking about, even though that even though Nathan put several cues in there in this story, the ewe lamb being in the arms of the man, in the arms of lying in the arms—that's language from the old, from the last chapter, where we also read twice about eating, drinking, lying, eating, drinking, lying. Here, this lamb eats and drinks and lies, and most of all. We're told by Nathan that this lamb was like a daughter to him. The Hebrew word for daughter is bath, part of Bathsheba's name. But David doesn't catch on to these these cues. He thinks he's still judging a real-life scenario. So he made an oath before the Lord, as the Lord lives, just as Uriah did in the last chapter, godly Uriah. Remember also in the last chapter how David so coolly, after Uriah's death, he sent word to Joab and said, Do not let this thing of Uriah's death, don't let it displease you. But now in chapter 12, hearing this story, a story that should be so close to home, his anger was greatly kindled. And David said, Because he did this thing, and because he had no pity, He deserves to die. David had no pity in chapter 11, not a bit, not for a moment. He was chillingly cool about it all. David didn't see his sin for what it was. He couldn't see his own image in the story of the rich man. Sin is blinding that way. We can often see the sins of others more clearly and more quickly than we can our own. We are often moved against and mad about other sins far more than our own. Our own we often dismiss. We often are indifferent to or we defend. Well, that principle of sin, that's what Nathan was playing on and planning for. David could see that sin and he was angry about it. He couldn't see his own. The hook of the prophet was baited. The line was cast. The big fish bit down hard and he was hooked before he knew it. And so the prophet yanked the line. Verse 7. You are the man. You are that man. You're the rich man, David. Nathan recounts to David God's faithfulness to him actually God through David recounts God's faithfulness to David in verse 7 and following God's faithfulness here is like a, a beautiful backdrop to contrast David's ugly sins thus says the Lord the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel I delivered you out of the hand of Saul I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Stop there for now. Don't get too hung up on this thing here where it sounds like God gave David wives, plural. I think here God is simply saying that David received all that was Saul's, and there was no reason for David to be looking for more. And if he thought he needed anything more, God would have given him all that he needed. So often in the Old Testament, when polygamy is mentioned, it's mentioned with a bit of a frown. Now, in Old Testament narrative, oftentimes things are right and wrong, not because we're told this thing was wrong and this thing was right. It's rare to have a statement like you have at the end of chapter 11, this thing displeased the Lord. Instead, the picture's painted and a frown is clearly there. Like in chapter 5, verse 13, where we read that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem we shouldn't have to be told that god doesn't like that and this isn't a good thing it's a ominous foreshadow of what's to come there are other examples we could think about and talk about but You can think about those on your own later. My point here is that we shouldn't get distracted by it here in 2 Samuel 12 because the broader point is that God gave David everything and more, and hence his taking of Bathsheba was senseless. Why? Why would you do it? Why? Why, verse 9, have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Here we have in verse 9 an x-ray of sin. Here's what it is. I know the world around us doesn't think sin exists. They snicker about it. Yeah, sin. What is sin anyway? Well, here's what it is. It's evil. And why is it evil? Because it despises the word of the Lord. Despise here is the same word that Goliath used well, the narrator used of Goliath when David, little David, came out to war against this giant. Goliath disdained him, sneered at him. He despised him. And that's what sin is to the word of the Lord it's disdaining it, sneering at it. And because sin is disdaining God's word, it's also disdaining God. God himself. And that's why we see in verse 10, because you have despised me, God says. David's sin in chapter 11 was particularly severe, wicked, persistent, and cruel. But every sin has rebellion against God at its core. As R.C. Sproul says, Every sin is cosmic rebellion against the Creator. Every sin is sneering at His commands. There are no white sins. There are no picky rules. There's no such thing as sinning, but it's not personal. It's personal, it's against the Lord. And yet, having said that, it's important to recognize that David's sin was severely wicked. Deuteronomy 17 was clear what the king was to do and not do. The Ten Commandments were quite clear about having no other gods before the true God, about not coveting another man's wife, about not murdering, not stealing, not lying. David had struck down Uriah the Hittite. He had taken his wife To be his own. It was violent, it was cruel, it was twisted, it was senseless. And thus, the prophet's rebuke was heavy and hard and persistent. Spurgeon says of Nathan's rebuke here Nathan made the truth to lash him to the quick. Nathan does not spare him. Every word is like a sharp sword piercing him to the heart. David is made to feel that the word of God can search out his most secret things and make him see himself in his true character. That reminds me of Hebrews 4, what it says about the word of God. That the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no one is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Brothers and sisters, those are scary verses, and yet they contain something very good. They contain great blessing for us. Yes, the word of God cuts, and and yes, that hurts, But those cuts from the word of God are the first steps toward healing. Like a surgeon beginning to cut in order order to remove tumor. That cancer would not be there and health would grow. We don't want to be left to ourselves. We don't want calluses to grow over our consciences. And that's why we need Nathans in our lives. People who will say hard things. Even if they don't do it as gently or as smoothly as Nathan did in his first part anyway, telling a parable first and getting you to admit you're kind of the guy in the story and a simple you are the man does it. Even when a friend is more clumsy than that, be patient, hear them, listen, trust them. We need Nathans in our lives. Do you have Nathans? Do you have anyone in your life who will say hard things to you? We need to be Nathans to each other. That's what the church is. The church is a, a bunch of Nathans who are helping each other with their sin. And really, that's what church membership is. It's giving permission to you to help me see my sins that I don't see, and vice versa. Here in a, a group this size, even more, much larger in the first service for some reason, I don't know why. But anyway, uh, we, d- we don't know who wants their sin to be helped and confronted and who's just here to go to church. That's membership. And this is why each Sunday we come and we sit under God's word preached. We need need it to speak to parts of our lives that we don't want it to address. That's why we preach through books of the Bible because we trust that God will have us wherever he needs us and he'll use whatever he has for us that Sunday to get us to think about things we wouldn't want to think about. To go to places we wouldn't want to go. This is why we try to pick up our Bibles once a day at least and read something. We're told that the Bible is a mirror, it shows us ourself. We're supposed to pick it up and read it and see and see blemishes and not forget where, where they are. So when the word comes to us like this, whether in our own reading of it or in the preaching of it or in the friend using it, we want to respond to that word immediately. We want to respond humbly and and clearly and unequivocally like this. Second C, confession. Confession. David responds with confession of sin. Verse 13 David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The words are few, but they are clear. I've sinned. It is me. I am the man no one else to blame and it was against the Lord no excuses nothing to add David's simplicity of confession here stands out in contrast to a confession that King Saul made back in 1 Samuel 15 when the prophet confronted King Saul back then Saul began just like David did here I have sinned. But then Saul went on, but it was because I feared the people and I had no choice and and, and you didn't come quickly enough, so I I had to. And Yes, I've sinned, but, but let me save face in front of the people. That's not genuine repentance. David's confession was genuine. We know that as well because he later wrote, a longer version of what he had in his mind and his heart when he said those few short words, I've sinned against the Lord. It's Psalm 51. Would you turn there in your Bible? Psalm 51. It's a psalm that David wrote, as we're told in the heading, when the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. It's a beautiful prayer. We'll just read the first 12 verses or so, and you can read the rest on your own later today. This is a prayer that helps us see what repentance looks like and maybe even can be a model for us to pray to the Lord when we need to, and we need to often. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Well, that's exactly what God did as we read 2 Samuel 12. Immediately after David's succinct but genuine, unequivocal confession, look back there. 2 Samuel 12, the second half of verse 13, Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin You shall not die. This section of God's word is littered with scandal. And this might be the most scandalous thing of them all. He deserved to die. It's what the law said. The law applied to kings and non-kings. The punishment was for the repentant and the non-repentant. It's scandalous for the prophet to say that the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. What might Uriah's mother have said that day if she heard those words? David deserved to die. But God simply put away his sin. How does God put away sin? Where does he put it? Where does it go? How does he fix it? Before answering that, which we'll do at the very end of our morning together, let's just stop and marvel that apparently he can. Apparently he can. Let's just marvel at God's grace. Let's just marvel at the fact that David wasn't forgiven here because, well, it's just a given. We have a nice God, and he always does that thing. No, he doesn't always do that. He isn't always nice, though he is always just. David wasn't forgiven because of the intensity of his repentance or the beauty of his psalm of repentance. David wasn't forgiven because what he did wasn't that bad. Oh, no, no, it was bad and bad, and bad. And David wasn't forgiven because, well, God perceived that he had learned his lesson and he'll do better in the future. David was forgiven simply because of God's sovereign, electing, mysterious, mystifying grace that's wholly undeserved and it's scandalous. We can spot that when the guilty go free. And the guilty isn't us. When we're the guilty, that is good news. It was good news for David that day to hear, your sin is put away and you shall not die. What utter relief he had to feel. You know that misery of hiding your sin and dealing with your guilt and trying to suppress it and ignore it? In high school, I made a fake report card, because I was loafing and getting bad grades, and my parents told me I had to get a B average to keep my car. I was going to get a B average, whether they knew it or not. (laughs) So I stole report card paper from the school. I found a friend who had the exact printer as the school, same number of dots in the letters, dot matrix, something else, kids, you'll... Find out about it someday, maybe. But uh, then I found out that I had to intercept, realized really, I realized that I had to intercept the real report card that would be showing up in the mailbox. So I went home at lunch for two weeks trying to sneakily check the mail. The next semester came around. I realized I'd have to make another fake report card because they put first semester and second semester together. (laughs) Then a third semester, then... I don't know if I got to fourth semester before I got caught. And I was so relieved when I got caught. I was so relieved. I was so happy that day. Finally done with this. My mom didn't exactly say, "Uh, your sin has been put away. (laughs) Um, She may have said instead, you're a dead man. But still, whatever punishment I was facing, it was better than the weight of guilt. David was not only found out, the sin exposed, he not only came clean, but he was forgiven. He was cleansed. Earlier in the service, Clint read from Psalm 32. And there we have a Psalm of David with no other heading. But it would be shocking. It's hard to imagine, at least, that this wasn't written about the same season of David's life as Psalm 51. Here, listen again. Psalm 32. We'll just read a few verses blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed or happy is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit for when i kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer but here's the the shift I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I encourage you to read that psalm in its entirety today in light of 2 Samuel 12. But there's more to 2 Samuel 12. It doesn't just end on a happy note. It isn't simply a happy ending. Because sin wreaks havoc, and sometimes God cleanses the guilt, and yet consequences remain, and in David's case, there were many consequences, or we might call it chastisement, the third C, chastisement, and here we'll pick up speed as we go through points three and four and five, chastisement, we've already skipped over some of it. Verses 10 through 12 speak of God's chastisement. Let's read those verses again. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And that is exactly what we see play out in the rest of 2 Samuel. David's house or his family will be wracked by sin and turmoil. One indeed will take David's wives as his own. In fact, it will be his son, Absalom. And Absalom in chapter 16 will take David's concubines and on the roof of the royal palace, he will have his way with David's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And he does this as a sign that he's now the king because he's orchestrated a coup and ejected his father and overtaken the throne. In the midst of civil war, all this is taking place. And it's a coup in a civil war that started because another son of David raped his sister, David's daughter, and David did nothing about it. Consequences are severe, and the sins, yes, are multiplying. But God's in it for chastisement, for discipline. God continued to discipline David. Even when the nation seemed to hang in the balance, even when the kingdom looked doomed to destruction, God was faithful and disciplined him, and that is mercy. You say, why is it mercy? It's hard. All discipline is hard. What sins more might David have committed without God's discipline? Remember God's unshakable promises to David back in chapter 7, where God said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. It'll be established forever. That's why it's important to call this section of 2 Samuel 12 here not just consequences, but chastisement. Because sometimes sin does have consequences even when we get cleansed. Of our guilt. And sometimes that's just the law of consequences that you sow and then you reap. Whatever you sow, you reap. But in David's case, it was more than that. God promised when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. So get this as, as it looks like the promises could crumble to the ground with David's great sin in chapter 11. And as it looks like the promises are going to be all undone when God speaks in chapter 12 of the turmoil coming to David's house, David's house will still remain secure. The kingdom will be established forever. When he sins, I'll discipline him. There's also discipline in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then David, then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night in the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell, them, the chi- tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Not every child that dies, dies because of a parent's sin. In fact, we should never conclude that apart from this. We never know that for sure to be true. We only know it in this case to be true because God is declaring it in the passage and the Bible infallibly records it for us. So we know God did this. We know it related somewhat, somehow, to David's sin. But why? Still, we ask why. And we're not told. It doesn't seem fair. David's sin, the child dies. David doesn't die, the child dies. It doesn't seem like it needs to be a consequence for David's sin. But again, that's why chastisement is the better word here than consequences. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. David will have to walk through the rest of his life with this limp, not to mention the future trials that will face him. Hebrews 12 tells us that discipline is painful, but it is good. It is a loving thing. It is a familial thing. Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines those he loves. God is treating you as sons when he disciplines you. If you're left without discipline, you're not sons. Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here in chapter 12, David is not all done with his sin. He will sin again. But again I say, how much more sin and how much greater sin might David have done had the Lord not disciplined him so severely? You can trust his discipline. You can trust his trials. It's mercy, even when it's a severe mercy. But that ongoing chastisement will mean Frustration, dilemma for all those around David. David's wife will feel the effect of his sin for the rest of her life. David's family will feel the effect of his sins for the rest of their lives. In that sense, they will pay for his sins. The child will die because of David's sins. A daughter raped, concubines ravaged, a nation will feel the effect of their king's sins for untold years. They will pay. And it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be the reverse, where the king makes right, and the king absorbs shame and guilt, where the king heals and extends steadfast love and forgives enemies and restores We need a king who passes on righteousness and blessings, not sin's consequences and curses. David probably can't imagine how God will one day do that. But from where he is, he trusts God. He trusts his God. He prays to his God and he worships his God. But now the fourth C, consolation. Consolation. Look at verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set, him, uh, set food before him and he ate. And his servants said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David's behavior was peculiar to his servants. Hopefully it makes a little more sense to us. David prayed and fasted when the child was sick in hopes that the Lord, who said the child would die, would perhaps relent. Saints before David did the same sort of thing. The Lord gave some sort of judgment, some sort of plan. They prayed, God answered. Not always, but sometimes he relented. But David reasons that once the child dies, there's no going back. Death is a one-way passage that is apart from the resurrection of Christ. David doesn't know that yet. And so he consoles himself. He comforts himself in his God. He has a God that he cannot control with his prayers, with his fasting. But it's a God he can trust. Despite unanswered prayer, it's a God he knows to be good and worthy of worship. He consoles his wife. Yes, she's now called his wife. Verse 24 Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Solomon was actually the fourth son born to David in Bathsheba, but the timeline is compressed here to get us to the punchline, you could say, to get us to the next king of Israel, Solomon. Here is the kingly line. It goes from David to Solomon. One son was taken Another son was given. It's consolation, but there's consolation upon consolation here because they named him Solomon. Somewhere in the middle there is the Hebrew word shalom. All we know is that it relates to shalom. His name means something about shalom, peace. Can you imagine the guts of naming a kid peace in the midst of all this chaos and turmoil going on in these chapters? We know what's to come for the house of David. And they named a son peace. That's faith. We're told the Lord loved him. Just as we were told in 2 Samuel 7. I'll discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And what's more is that God sent Nathan the prophet to the royal family one more time. This is the last time Nathan's mentioned in 2 Samuel. God sent Nathan to David's family with another name for Solomon, Jedediah, which means because of the Lord. But it has even greater significance than that, it means more than because of the Lord. Pastor Ron pointed this out to me this week, and I was so helpful, I was so thankful for it. You can't see it in English, but in Hebrew, the name Jedidiah is a mingling of Yahweh and David. Yahweh, God's name; David, his king. A son with both. Oh, Solomon's not going to be divine. In fact, he's going to be a bit of a character. He's going to be worse than his father David. But we know where this is going. One day there will be a son of David who will say something greater than Solomon is here. Of him, Matthew began by telling us of the son of David And Mark began his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection by introducing us to the Christ, the Son of God. He's both Son of God and Son of David. And that's why Jesus in Mark 12 reasoned with the religious leaders. He asked, how is it that David's son is also David's Lord? And they had no answer for him, but the answer was right in front of them. It was Jesus. Jesus. He's the one. And we get just a glimpse of it buried there in the little name, Jedidiah. Jesus is the answer to another dilemma, how God can remove sin. Remember, we left that undone. How does God remove sin? Where does it go? What does he do with it? David deserved to die And God said, you shall not die. Why? Where's the justice, we might ask? Well, the answer is so condensedly, wonderfully, richly packed in Romans 3. Let me read a few verses from Romans 3, which helps us understand how God put away David's sin, how he has put away your sin, if he has, or how he can put away your sin if he hasn't yet. Romans 3, verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption or the payment that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a quenching of God's wrath by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, Old Testament sins. But it was to show his righteousness at the present time, the age of the cross, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what becomes of our boasting? Excluded. There is none. No boasting here. By what kind of law does this happen? By a law of works? No, no, no. A law of faith. That's how we get in. That's how this is ours. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You want to know how God could remove David's sin and he not die that day? God put his sins on Jesus. The Old Testament was one big IOU until the payment was made. The saints of old looked forward to the day when God would make it right and he would deal with sin in a permanent way. And the saints who, are, who have lived since the time of Christ, they look back to the cross, to the resurrection where Jesus died in their place for the payment of sin. There he cleansed. There he blotted out. There he turned his face away. We might be saved. Do you believe that? If you don't have that yet, you don't know what that means yet, just take those verses I read in Romans 3 and read them and reread them and reread them and reread them and ask good questions of them. Ask a good Christian friend, maybe if you have one, what they mean. Or meet with someone here at the church and talk to them about these verses in Romans 3 that you might come to understand. This rich theologically packed sentence, and it being the the hope for all humanity and the only hope for your sin. One last C quickly is conquest. Verses twenty six in following turn the corner as the chapter ends, and it's a bit of a head scratcher, I must confess. Verse 26 says, Now Joab fought against Rabah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all of the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, about 75 pounds. And in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. And David And all the people returned to Jerusalem. So we end where we began last week. The Ammonites. Did you forget about the Ammonites? Remember in chapter 10, verse 1, David sent Joab in the Israelite army out to fight the Ammonites. And David remained in Jerusalem. And here, chapter 12 ends by David going out to finish off the Ammonites and with all Israel returning to Jerusalem. They're neat bookends there. But there's some oddities in the story itself. I mean, David doesn't look too nice here. He not only defeats the enemies, but he subjugates them. It seems like an odd ending to the story. It seems like we should have ended at verse 25 and and went home. But this is important. Because whether we like it or not, this was God's plan for his people at this time. He was driving out the nations around, the wicked nations around them, and he was giving them the land and planting them in that land for their peace second Samuel 7 promised David defeat over all his enemies and the people planted in peace in their place that's what we're seeing the king's back to work the king is fully restored god's man is doing god's plan and it's happening the last enemy defeated it's also familiar of another king another king who will one day come the true king jesus will one day one last time he will go out to war he will wear the greatest crown he will have a name which is above every name he will defeat his final enemies and yet he doesn't just come in judgment but he comes in salvation He will lead us back home to a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth. And so we shall ever be with the Lord forever and ever. This is our king. Behold the goodness and severity of our king. For those of us who know his goodness, let us marvel that it is indeed good. He has grace that's greater than our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his great plan, that he's the king, that he came, that he died, that he was raised, and that this is victory for him, for us, and for all in him, and it is a sign for all who've yet to come under him, we pray for those here who Haven't yet come under him, that they would before he returns. They would not face this king who will one day go out to battle, but they would take this king who calls the needy, who calls sinners, who will simply confess and call out and receive his mercy to have that mercy. Father, we thank you for grace that is greater than our sin. Help us to sing of it now with joy, with faith, and with great thanks and praise to you who has done it. Amen.